depression is what is kind of the entropy or the the dust of emotional life. And if so, if you're not polishing that grounded feeling, it's gonna get dusty, man. You're gonna get depressed. That's just kind of how you gotta you gotta work at the positive. Positive doesn't just happen. Hey everybody, welcome back to Plain Ordinary Dragon. We're so glad you're here today. You know, time is the most precious resource that any of us have, and the fact that you would choose to spend a little of yours with us today is very humbling, and we never take it for granted, and we really do appreciate it. We're very grateful for the time. This is part two of Bob Marston's interview, and Bob is very, uh, as you can tell, very detailed and precise about the different times in his life uh, and how things have matured. And so there's a lot of things that, that we can learn from what he has to say. Also, as an added bonus today, we're going to be listening to some of Bob's music on the podcast. In fact, you probably heard the the intro music. Well, that that was Bob. Yeah. And we're going to listen to one of his songs in the podcast and the outro music will also be Bob. So we're going to get to hear some of his music and we're also going to get to hear him talk about his journey some more. And we're going to wrap that up today. So without uh, further ado, here is Bob Marston, part two. So I think we met in the fall of 2011 because, no, was it 12? It was 13. Ooh, okay. So check it out. So right. picking back up in, in 2000. Six going into 2007 was when I realized that I had a, an opportunity in music that I wanted to, to fulfill and take advantage of, but that I knew I didn't have the requisite knowledge and skills. So I talked to my girlfriend. She said, it's a blues band. We've got Hal Leonard's you know blues bass style book so you can learn. And that was the first time that I had anything any sort of guidance that that worked for me and made sense and, and and I guess did what I felt like goes back to where I thought I said earlier which is how I try to think about it now is like is that what I have with music is a practice and a relationship in a relationship what you what makes relationships good is getting to know each each individual or each party getting to know the other party and supporting that party striving for growth as an individual uh, allowing, enabling, and supporting the growth of the other. In this case, music is is vast and infinite, so it really doesn't have any, it doesn't need to grow any, and it's up to us to bring it about. So, uh, but th th that's the way I think of it, and that's the first time, and I, uh, Elliot, I've never really even thought about it like this. I remember that moment, and that book is somewhere, but that was the first time that I, began to get to know who, what music, what makes music what it is, you know, and I knew about notes and rest, but I didn't, I hadn't done that. I hadn't practiced that. I hadn't been taught, you know, I mean, even clapping on beats and stuff, I mean, pretty, pretty simple, you know, early, early childhood music education. I didn't, I didn't, if I ever did it, I didn't do it enough to have a re recollection of it being a thing I did. You know, I may have done it once or twice at a camp or some at school for a lesson, but never, it wasn't like, oh yeah, and we, 
I had music class and this is what we did. I, I have no recollection. I have like xylophones when I was a really like five years old, but I don't, it, it was like an after school thing. It wasn't a consistent practice. So I get this blues book and I start studying it and it makes a lot of sense. Right. So this, I think I got departed. I departed earlier when I was talking about in New, I was in New Orleans one time. It was the first time that I heard a blues progression and, and I didn't know what it was, but I knew like it's fixing to do the thing, the first change. And, and then it's going to come back to where it was. And then it's going to go to a, a third place and then work its way back to the first place. And I didn't know that those were chords or chord changes. And I didn't know anything about, I mean, you just heard it and felt it. Yeah, I mean, and I suppose I had a concept of what a measure is in music, but I, not to, to really talk about it, you know. Um, and I knew that a waltz was a dance, and I may have known that it was three. I don't know. I mean, some of this is hard to remember what you knew before you knew more sure. now that you know a lot more. Um, still not a whole lot, though. So th there was 2007, so I had a blues bass book, and I'm in this blues band. And I still do my own thing, but this is really, you know, I'm playing in bars and, and at least getting beers, if not some money, and that was very affirming. I met a guy that I ended up, a guy named Joe, that I ended up in a, I mean, he was a much more accomplished musician than I was, and he could play lead guitar, which I, you know, was like, man, I need a lead guitar player because I want to, what I had seen people that had a similar skill set to me of playing an acoustic guitar and singing, the diff what I didn't have as far as getting gigs was a lead guitar player to play, to be a duo partner and do the what I called the wiggly wiggly, right, to ornament the music. So uh, we struck it up. We were it was a kind of an immediate thing of of both digging older roots music, countercultural stuff, uh, kind of being into the history and anthropology of all of it. So we struck up a friendship and began to play music together. Some I don't remember when we started doing duos. Um, I can't recall it when our first gig was or where it was, uh, but I know that in two it, by the Going into the summer of 2008, I was playing consistently with the blues band and still wasn't feeling really confident, but was, you know, getting through the gigs well enough. And I'd also realized at, at a certain point that, you know, they hadn't read the blues book that I had read and that there was stuff that they were, they were already, I had sort of surpassed from a knowledge base and a, like a background and what's going on in the music and the roles of the different instruments and how how it moves and works. And, and in some ways, I mean, even the really simple, like that it's really important that we all be locked in a groove together. Like that makes it better. And that if the drummer isn't doing that and is speeding up and has his head looking down at his snare while we're just like slowly creeping faster and faster and faster. And we kind of end up with the same song by the end, no matter how we start it, we, every song ends the exact same. Cause it's sort of just like, like entropy just sort of, like blobs into the same song. And I was like, man, so also working with this other guy, Joe, like we didn't have those problems. And if we did, they were my problems, not the, not the other guys. Right. I realized that I'd these, you know, I was beginning to make my way through growing as a musician for the first time. Cause again, I told you I didn't really play with other people prior and I didn't, and I didn't play along with records cause I couldn't. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the way it was. I was, I was playing on the corner of random places wherever I was traveling. And sometimes it would go well, sometimes it wouldn't go well. Uh, usually it went, you know, I was just kind of modestly ignored. Uh, and it didn't really catch any flack, which was all right for me. That whole 2008, 2009, I was playing music in Miss in Jackson, Mississippi, doing the duo. And bring oh, so spring of 2008 going into the summer was when I got together my first full band with Joe as lead guitar player and 
I picked up a rhythm section off another guy who had recently been doing a very similar like sort of roots country but blues and R&B kind of thing and his rhythm section needed work and he was like flaky I think he maybe moved to Nashville or moved to Texas or something so they needed work uh, and I gave it to him I, in a discussion with the drummer I found out that one of the reasons was you can't play certain clubs in Jackson if you don't have a white lead singer still yep at least then because uh, wow. they had a, a group that was really accomplished that played a lot of black clubs that was w- like musicianship and they were way better than anything I could put together, man. I mean, the singers knew what they were doing. They could harmonize. They could kick off songs. They could sing all kinds of different songs, sing a full range, a high tenor range, you know, high enough. They were good. They could cover tunes well, but they couldn't play some of these sports bars and in the white areas of town. Crazy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Mississippi, man. I mean, and I, you know, I, I guarantee it's the same thing here in Birmingham. I mean, they're, I, cause I have friends that do both. And it's one of the things that I aspire to as I'm coming up is to play, is to go over and play the Red Wolf, which is a, a cinder block blues juke joint in uh, midfield, powderly. And I want to connect with the other half of Birmingham that, 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 that most people that look like me don't cross over into. And part of it's, it, it's kind of equal parts. Because the people, I want to connect with this community and I want to acknowledge that there is a whole community and be engaged with the whole thing, no matter what that looks like. Because if you try it, it always goes well. It, I mean, even if there's a few jerks or something along the way, it never, it always ultimately goes well until you start maybe threatening some people and then you'll have what you call haters. But that's just part of it. That's not a problem. And sometimes having haters is an indication of success. Well, that's what I'm saying right. is you, you, you're, you're getting some traction. Something's actually happening. The other reason I would want to engage with uh, the black community here in Birmingham is that specifically in Birmingham and in general in the Southeast and in the United States, the black community is the source of uh, the majority of the music that I like the most. Whether or not it was actually white people or black people or white people playing the music that I initially got into, but the more I've learned about it, most of the styles that I like were innovated by at least a mixture of black and white people, if not in almost entirely by black people and then co-opted or whatever the word is. What's the word now? Appropriated, which has always been the word. I guess we just didn't acknowledge it. Anyway, my point is that I had that band. It was awesome. I, but I didn't know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't count tunes off because I couldn't count in a consistent rhythm. I didn't know. I mean, I, you know, I probably could have if I wasn't so damn nervous about it. But when I try, I would count at one tempo and then start playing at a different tempo, which you want to talk about pissing your band members off, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's a real good way to do it. Uh, so that was 2008. So 2008 and going into 2009, I was in the blues band. I had the full band with Joe as a lead guitar player and uh, D and Stevie as the rhythm section. And we would sub out sometimes, sometimes D. Well, I remember one time. D couldn't make it, and we got this other bass player, and he was just monstrous. He was slapping and popping. We gave him a solo on Sign Seal Delivered, the Stevie Wonder song, and it was just like, I think I stopped playing. I was just so blown away by what he was doing on his instrument and locking in with Stevie, and Joe was doing his thing. And then at the end of it, he patted on his head, which I didn't know what it, I mean, I didn't know that that was a thing, but I figured oh, we're probably starting over. And so I played my guitar part that I was supposed to at the, the head of the song, and that's what you do. I mean, but that goes, I mean, that's the same thing in, in classical music and written music, you know, da capo, DC, alfine is you go to the top and then go to where it says fine. And there's other ones where you can move or you can move around in written music to indicate parts. But my point is, is that I was in these bands. Maybe that's just the point. Uh, I was about to go into the whole thing that, that there's really so much less division between classical and self-taught or community-taught folk-type traditions. There's so much more the same than there is different. 
like like there is in a lot of our divisions. Because good musicianship is good musicianship. It, it's a language. It's the exact same language. It's no different. Uh, there's stylistic differences. That's it. What makes groove exists in classical music just like it does in R&B or funk or old time music or you know banjo music claw hammer banjo it's all groove one of the essential elements of appealing music is groove the more of it there is the better there is the better it is the the great groups that are you know revered and timeless awesome groove ones that are seen as kind of average and passing well you know maybe average groove and we could extrapolate that into there's groove in Lyrics and phrasing, it goes on and on. I was in this band. It was 2008, 2009. Then I had, was given an opportunity. It was given the option of either relocating or losing the uh, losing a long-term relationship that I had that at the time had been long distance for two years, I guess. And I wasn't interested in that. Uh, and while I wasn't sure it was going to happen if I moved, that's all I could do to proactively influence it to resume. So I did that. Uh, and I left behind those two musical projects that had been kind of my first thing going from me banging around on my on my rogue and like actually performing where it's official. Uh, I'm the performer. So I got to Birmingham and there was, that was uh, 2009. So I taught school for 2009 and 2010 and I played gigs as I could. I cobbled a band together with, I would sometimes get Joe to come over from Mississippi and play lead guitar and I would try to get something else going on. The girl that I moved to have an opportunity to be with was a, she's a fantastic singer. Uh, she's a solid songwriter. She doesn't write or that I know of. She doesn't write as much as it would be beneficial to the community that she would. Um, but also she could do percussion, alternate percussion. She, she wasn't great at the time at, at trap set, but she could play some drums too. So I was trying to do a, something where she would play drums and I would play guitar and we would have maybe a lead guitar, maybe something else, some, something where I wouldn't, where I could have three or four and no more people. Cause you got to try to pay people. It's sort of the point. If you're going to play for money, you want to try to make money. Yeah, makes sense. And in a lot of ways, that's just the evidence that you're getting the job done. You're playing well when people are going to pay you to do it. That doesn't always mean that you're doing doing it. The more money you make, the better you're doing. But there is value to it. Yeah, somebody's valuing it. And that, the spring of 2010, is when I quit teaching. So similarly, the narrative of when I started with the blues book and the idea of like, you can get better at it, but you've got to find resources and information and whether it's manual techniques or theory or style or whatever it is that you're trying, the information that you are needing in order to perform the way you want to and understand and, and express the play, the music you're trying to play. So I thought, okay, well that's what I'm going to do. Uh, and as it turns out, I didn't quit. I was going to quit and I got laid off. So I had, I was on unemployment. So for a year, which is sort of a lost year because I didn't have a job, but at the same time, I didn't, I wasn't yet on the path of understanding how to approach music development in the, in what has turned out to what I've found now, which is the best way it seems for me. So the, the years from 2010 until I met you in 2013 were spent with me. The first year was me like trying to practice and trying to like network. So I did a lot of like bumbling, some bumbling ish practice during the day and a lot of homemaking because my girlfriend had a job and I didn't. Then at night I would go out to open mics, but I would also go out to bars and just drink and talk to people and hang out and, and just in a lot of ways lament why things weren't happening better, but without much constructive direction. 
And so those years were when it became clear that it was while I had a lot of learning about music and developing skill, the bigger fight was a spiritual one with kind of my self-worth and my, I don't know, getting coming to terms with some demons, I guess, maybe some depression stuff and figuring out and realizing that what was stifling me was not my intellectual ability or my manual capacity to play or anything like that. It was, it was some sort of spiritual, emotional, psychological battle that needed to be fought. And so I spent 2010 to 2011 school year, if you will, unemployed doing that stuff with some success and some not success. I, I took a temp job, uh, agricultural job that I didn't think was going to kick me off of unemployment, but then it did. So uh, there I was in the middle of Iowa, no longer getting unemployment and looking at like two more weeks worth of this temp job. So I had to figure out what the heck I was going to do. As it turned out, my cousin had opened a cafe in Little Rock and needed some help in the kitchen. That was something that I had done through my years. I had learned how to work in a kitchen to some proficiency. And so that's what it seemed like we would do is I was going to move with that girlfriend up to Little Rock. So we got back from temp job thing and uh, which actually as it turns out ended earlier than we expected because somebody quit which is valid there's nothing wrong with that you can quit you can quit and the thing to do if you're there with your significant other is probably to also quit so I don't regret that decision Um, I'm actually kind of proud of it in a sort of self-sacrificing kind of way I guess I don't know get back to Birmingham get ready for the move that happens to be the time where I cut my dreads off which I've been growing for seven years Moved to Little Rock with the idea that my girlfriend was going to move up within a couple of months, you know, which after about a week or two became very clear it was not going to happen. So then it was, oh, well, how am I going to walk this back and not leave my cousin hanging? But during those times, I'd also gotten the general, the Hal Leonard guitar method book. So I was working through it. I was doing this Hal Leonard book and I kept doing it and it was, I was getting a lot, but I also knew there was like, if I go at this pace, it's going to take me forever. I'm, it's not guided. Number one, I don't have any, any instructor and I didn't, I knew there was something missing and what it turns out what was missing was what a teacher can give you, which is more specific physical technique sort of stuff. Like you need to keep your wrist looser or you, you know, how about your posture or have you noticed the way, you know, your arm angle on your left hand and how that affects what's going on. Cause I had a lot of really bad habits built up from years of just kind of hacking away at it with substandard instruments and zero guidance and no knowledge of what was going on. And just thinking like you're swinging your hand at this thing, right? Yeah. I don't know. Preach it brother. I'm, I'm with you there. Right. So it would have been the summer of 2012 after a stressful training because I am getting better at this, but I tend to be really hard on myself. And so and I was learning a job that usually takes somebody six months to learn. And I learned it in like two and a half months, which I didn't realize at the time they didn't tell me. And it wasn't until later on when I heard other bakers discussing, I was learning how to be an artisanal baker. And it wasn't until later that I found out that like I did it faster than they'd ever seen anybody do it. And I, when, I, I, when I heard that first, it was like, man, that's really cool. My next thought was, why the hell didn't you tell me that? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel so bad. And, and then my third thought was, well, they probably did, but you were like, whatever, man, I can do better. So uh, once the intense, stressful period of that training ended and I maintained a level of depression that was unacceptable, my girlfriend suggested that I get a teacher. So I got my first teacher. And because I have lofty goals, instead of going and saying like, hey, like my playing is kind of in shambles and I don't really know what to do with it. Can you help me? I said, I want to learn how to improvise. So I learned about modes. I learned about diatonic modes 
And uh, some stuff I still know how to use. A lot of stuff that's in there that I will eventually access, but it's like, I don't know. Um, but ultimately, it was, it, was, it was good because it helped me realize that I needed the help of someone, not just some book. So I went down that road for the rest of 2012. And during this period, I wasn't playing any music. I decided that I knew there was an experience in 2011 after having spent the year, I thought, getting better. And then I went and played a show with Joe before he moved to Chicago and was going to, you know, sat in with him on his farewell show in Jackson. And I was not as good as I thought I was. So I was like, I'm not playing out in public until I'm over, until I have dealt with this stuff. Uh, that lasted for about three years. Um, which was right when I saw you. So from 2011 to 2013, right before we met, I wasn't playing at all. Well, I guess I was a little bit because in 2000, at some point in 2012, this bar that I had played at in the past called me up, and so I started playing there, uh, you know, infrequently but with some regularity. So 2012 summers when I started taking lessons, probably that fall at some point was when I started playing again, and I realized that that I was creating a lot of discomfort for myself singing coincidentally my girlfriend was doing a jazz thing with this piano player she's a classically trained singer it's a hell of a singer they were doing you know a different kind of nightclub than i had been working in this guy that my ex-girlfriend knew through the university of montevallo community was a local voice teacher who coincidentally and ironically i took a lesson from two lessons from when i was 17 and i was like oh, i'm really into musical theater i think maybe that's what i needed that's my music thing is music i'll be in godspell everywhere or Jesus Christ Superstar or something. Because I was like, man, I don't like musicals. Man, that Jesus Christ Superstar, like, that was awesome, man. Mm. That's cool, man. I like the message, and it was rock and roll. And, man, yeah, I want to do that. And so I took those two lessons with him when I was 17. So flash forward, I'm 30, and he's coming to my girlfriend's jazz gigs. Uh, you know, a lot of times voice teachers will go just to support and see either, you know, colleagues or fellow teachers or former students or they are also kind of prospecting for students sometimes. If you're a voice teacher and you go hear a singer and it's over, you say, hey, I can help, I can make it better. I can improve your instrument for you. You know, I can get you more low end or I can get you better tone or I can do, you know, and it isn't criticism. And he's really great at that. I've seen him do it before. Like, he's like, hey, I can, it's almost like he tells you the thing that he knows you're wondering, like, man, I wish I could get this better. And he's like, hey, I could get that better. <laughs> and they're like, whoa, okay, well. So, it just it became clear that I needed not only this guitar teacher, but also I needed a vocal instruction. So well, a big milestone in my development was February of 2013, after having gone up to South Carolina to sing at a buddy's. There's a buddy of mine from high school that lives in South Carolina, and he was having a what's called an oyster bake, and uh, he needed music. So he's like, hey, man, why don't, you, why don't I pay you some money so you'll actually come to my party and you can come up here and play some music and we'll hang out. And I did that, and... I guess maybe I'd had a gig the night before or something and it like it was it was really bad for me. And they said it was all right, but I knew like I couldn't keep doing this. So that's when I started taking with the teacher and I had to get over that I'm it's going to make me sound different in a bad way instead of it's going to you know solve these problems that I have. First teacher I ever first person that got close to me around music that I never as they were helping me grow and improve and by, by pointing out what I wasn't doing well that I never lashed out against. And I've told him that, and it's something that I'm really proud of because it wasn't, because that's what you, I mean, I don't know if we've established this in this podcast on these episodes yet, but we are our worst with the people we are closest with. Yeah, there's some, some definite truth to that. 
you know, and maybe we're bad to strangers too, but for, for me at least, like I, I shared most of my depression and my demons and my anxieties with people, with girlfriends, even more than I showed my family, you know, and in, in a way, you know, cause a lot of times those are the people that are encouraging you, you know, your significant others or, you know, you can do it. And that one of the issues with at least my experience of anxiety and depression and that sort of emotional pathology is that you, the problem is you don't believe you can do it. And so when someone tries to affirm you, you lash out and reject it the same way that you do to criticism. You don't react to positivity or negativity. Well, you just, cause it's just, it's a spiral of, of kind of BS to be honest. I mean, stuff that just isn't, you're making all these assumptions and, and giving weight to these things that maybe don't matter. And it's just kind of all out of alignment and weird. So when somebody tries to deal with it, it is that. And so it's hard to deal with. But this teacher, I just knew was a part of my intuition, part of the fact that he had come into my life twice. When I realized it was the same dude, I was like, man, this has got to be meant to be. This is totally part of it. And it worked. When I worked with him, it got better. And he told me we had a lot of work to do because of how much singing I had done poorly. Um, but he was committed and, and he, and I would ask him like, so do you think I can get where I can sing like Sam Cooke? And he's like, absolutely. Sure. I mean, and, I mean, I don't think he meant like as good as Sam Cooke or something, but sing with ease and range and power and, and agility and all that sort of stuff. And he was like, yeah, absolutely. That's what I do. I fix voices. From that moving on, that's been a, a big part of me believing that I can continue to get as much better as I would like to. As I feel that I essentially, to some extent, that I sort of am. It kind of feels like I, like the way uh, Michelangelo, I've heard him talk, he's quoted talking about sculptures. When somebody asks him, like, how do you imagine the the figure and create it. He's like, I don't, I just see it. I, I look at the rock and I see the, the shape, the figure, and I remove the rock that's in the way of the shape to reveal it. And that's the way I feel about my process in, in musical skill development is that I feel like this is the musician I am, but I just can't do it. I like, I've been convinced I don't know how to do it or I don't know how to do it yet or whatever. And it's cause as I get it, it, it becomes very natural and fulfilling. And it's like, yes, that's what I was going for. And you have the same same uh, voice teacher today as you did back yeah, then? Yeah, so uh, over six years now. be seven years in February. That was really the beginning of the growing apart of me and that last ex-girlfriend was that year where I began to really improve in my practices and my singing and, and my overall emotional... I, w- I would go through... The depression would come back, but I would have days where I was really positive and like legitimately like I'd worked at it because that's what you have to do. You, you don't have a positive, grounded emotional experience if you don't work at it. So a lot of times people that are for me, at least when I'm experiencing depression, it's, it's if I'm like you got to depression is what is kind of the entropy or the the dust of emotional life. And if so, if you're not polishing that grounded feeling it's going to get dusty, man. You're going to get depressed. That's just kind of how you got to, you got to work at the positive. Positive doesn't just happen. Um, I mean, eventually it can, it really does take on a momentum, but, but if you're used to a depressive momentum, a stagnation type momentum, then it's going to be, you really got to work hard to create this other momentum and get it, and get it going. But that's what I was doing. The relationship began to grow apart. I mean, I think in large part because, uh, it was just, it had been too much turbulence over the years, too much to deal with. And so as, as I began to grow, it didn't, it didn't seem like we were growing together. And I think I just, I had put too much space. There's a lot more to it, but whatever. Point being, the relationship fell apart, ended right before we saw each other. So I had had about six, eight months of working with my voice teacher and 
growing and being like, wow, I got, and I mean, I'll be honest, it was hard. Like I doubted a ton and I still doubt some even now as far as I've come, but like it was horrible at first. 2013, the breakup happened and I decided I got to get back out and start singing. I, I can't worry about practicing as much as I was, I need to be focused on, you know, doing something different. And that's what, what's, what's consistently worked in my life is if something isn't working, do something else, do something else, man. So you've been trying to practice for three years and all you've done is, you know, you found a couple of good teachers. That's really great. You're making some really good progress, but you've also done some really obsessive, depressed, uh, like anger practicing and it's really weird and you've now lost you know a person that you loved a lot and so let's do something different so how about no practice except for voice every day and we're going to go try to get gigs and try to play and try to be that emotive connected uh social socially talented emotionally intelligent person and do that and so i did that for a year and uh, that's when I met you. That's when I was doing the open mic. That's when I was, I was playing in two or three different bands. I went back to playing bass in a blues band, you know, and was singing in, in that band, you know, that, that sort of career positivity took hold for a little while. Then at the end of 2014, can we continue? Oh, absolutely. I, I think I can just about bring us up to modern day at about the time I was hoping to wrap it up, which is tough for me, as you know, <laughs> um, fall 2013, wide open playing all over the place with whoever I can play with as much as I can, not really worrying about practicing other than learning material and just being, just saying yes and being positive all the time. Just, yeah, it's great. And it did. It went great. I was playing in a play, playing bass in a country band, playing bass in a blues band, playing, doing shows with uh, solo shows and duo shows still with the ex-girlfriend. And then 2014, I met a fiddler who was fantastic through the old ex-girlfriend and a really weird serendipity of that story. It's crazy. But, you know, so now I've got this best musical buddy, one of my best musical buddies, uh, Fiddler. So we were doing stuff. I also had a duo with a, a guy that played mandolin and guitar. Now, Adam, it's Adam Purvis you're talking about. Right. He, you got together with on the fiddle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was similar to the the years of from 2008 or 2007 to 2009 where I was in Mississippi and just like going for it and had had some opportunities that I was able to take advantage of and had some opportunities where I didn't like I where it didn't quite happen the way I needed it to to do what I was planning on doing uh one of the big things was I'd I'd gotten selected I wrote a a song about Birmingham for a a local singing local songwriter contest got to the finals which was 12 people out of I don't know they had a few hundred entries which was like awesome I felt fantastic about that because I was going to submit, I heard about, it, I was going to submit an old song that I'd written about Birmingham. And then I was walking at Ruffner mountain near my, what's now my house and in, in the neighborhood that I was living at the time, couch surfing. I, um, I it just came to me. The beat came first and then a little of the, of like the changes, kind of the feel tonally. And then I started just saying stuff and I didn't have anything to write on. I didn't have a phone. It was before I had a smartphone. I didn't have any phone. I wouldn't take a phone with me on the mountain. So I had to just remember it and keep reciting all the way through it as I was adding. That is, is tough to do. It's really, really hard. hard. <laughs> right. As a songwriter, I can 100% validate that that is insanely hard. But if, if, it's, if you've gotten the flow, that's, if it's strong enough, it'll work. It'll get through that. And I wrote 90% of it or 80, 85, 90% of it on the mountain, held it in my head, drove to my mom's house, wrote it all down, and tinkered a little bit with it, and that was it. I mean, after that day, I may have changed a word or two, but that was the, the song was done. 
It's definitely an inspired song. There is no two ways about it. It's my wife's favorite song that you, that you, of yours. Right on. Right I mean, on. Like yeah, she I loves mean. that song. Like every time we get together and play and stuff, she's always hoping that you will play that one because she loves that tune. Well, that makes me feel great. You know, and that's it. A lot of the songs that I write, I think we're trying to be something like that, which is one of the things that I want to maintain in my songwriting when I get back to it. But it's also something that I'm, I think I sometimes try a little too hard. And one of the things that I don't like about my songwriting is it doesn't have enough darkness in it. That song begins to, it just starts to, and there's a few others where I've messed with it a little bit, but I'm usually afraid to open up with that level of vulnerability and darkness because I'm afraid that people won't like it. I would rather write something that it's like neater and tidier. And there it is. See, this is what I'm talking about. When you start opening up and really getting real, which will be dark sometimes, it's hard to keep it on message. Of a city in beginning, not knowing where it's been, wondering if magic can overcome sin. While I'm walking in my mind. Just be me Cause we are Real man 
know exactly what it is you may be revealing more than you want to which is a a scary thing for somebody oh absolutely vulnerability is one of the scariest things but it's also the thing that connects us to one another and that's why vulnerability is so very important i know that in the a lot of the tunes that i write i write some stuff that has been considered dark by some folks and has been um pretty uh sad i guess but the one thing that i've always noticed in my tunes is that there's always a thread or a glimmer of hope that kind of winds its way through that darkness. Like, yeah, there's all this bad stuff that's happened, all this terrible stuff that's happened, but there is just this little silver lining of possibility of hope. And that's the way that I solved it anyway, was, you know, it it doesn't have to be, it, it still needs to be as dark as what I'm trying to convey, but it also needs to have that glimmer of hope, which I also hold on to. Sure. I mean, in contrast, always helps bring something into full relief, I guess. Um, so we met at, um, you were doing a, an open mic night at, I think, the Crestwood Tavern, wasn't it? What Light? What? After the Wilco song. Oh, okay, okay. There you go. And uh, really, you've been mostly my connection to music in Birmingham. Like, that, that meeting for me was incredibly fortuitous because it opened up all the doors to Birmingham and the music scene for me because I didn't have anyone really to do that with. Um, and so it was uh, w- one of my favorite things was, was in coming to Birmingham was being able to become friends with you and then start sort of meet these other people, you know, in your, in your circle and kind of become a little bit of part of that. My music family here in Birmingham, you know, you know, the, the way that I remember it, you know, I remember that you had gone through that breakup and it seemed like it was a really dark time there for about a year when I met you until you kind of, it, it kind of seems like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you, you were, you were, when I met you, you were kind of going full, full, full bore, right? Like you were saying, you were playing all these different bands and you're doing the different open mics and, and, you know, kind of doing that push. And then it kind of seemed like that, that relationship piece kind of really threw you for a loop. Like there was a lot that you were dealing with there uh, because there were sometimes I was really concerned about you and we talked about that. And then it kind of seemed like you kind of changed focus. Was it a year later or two years later? It was exactly one year later. Um, I, so to pick right back up where I left off, that's we're heading right into that moment. It was uh, summer 2014. I'd gotten in the finals with the Real Magic Good People. Winning, the, there were going to be three winners of the 12 that were, of the finalists that were winners, equal winners. And you got $1,000 cash. I think this is right. I know it was $1,000 cash. And I think it was, it was an amount of recording and amount of mixing time. I think it was eight hours of recording and four hours of mixing. But the idea, I guess the idea was that you could do maybe an album. And if you're super, super ready, if you were a band that had been like, you know, they'd been playing working band that had been doing this material or something. I mean, albums get recorded in a day. It's awfully rare. Um, you got to be, it, it, things have to come together. So, but w- what I hoped was that I could get a, a really solid recording of Real Magic Good People and maybe as many as two. So at least I would have a legit single, A-side, B-side single 
to sell and put, you know, promote and use something. I had had demos all the way up to that point and still only do, but never anything that was like that, even two songs that felt like they happened, were recorded together and there was some sort of connection and it made sense, two songs. Or, you know, I was hoping I could get three or four and have, you know, really call it an EP and have something that I could, you know, get more out of town work. I'd gotten a little bit of touring on my songwriting stuff. Uh, just short stuff going over to Mississippi. Mostly people that I knew previously. Nothing that, uh, no cold opportunities or whatever. Like where you just call somebody up or, or you know pitch somebody. But but some stuff and it had gone pretty well. And I'd gotten some some uh, media, some some recordings, live recordings, and some photos and stuff. A little, little bit of press uh, that I could use to promote. So I was thinking that you know, that this is what's going to happen. I'm going to write this awesome song. I get you know I get third. And instead, I, I just got finalists, which was like 250 So I, that's what I basically used that to pay the musicians that backed me up for the competition. And there I was. And then and that was in June. Then I had July. I had a, a, a birthday show, birth, my birthday show at a place called Moonlight on the Mountain that was a, a Loved Moonlight on the Mountain. really awesome a DIY kind of venue, but but a little upscale listening room kind of thing. Didn't sell alcohol. It was BYOB. And really supported, you know, music, music for music's sake. Keith, the guy that ran the play, that owned the place, gave me, a, you know, I went to an open mic and didn't get, didn't win the competition for the open mic, but I stopped by on my way out. I was like, hey man, if you ever need me to open for somebody, I'd be happy to. And he said, you can have a show, man. You know, just tell me when you want it. And I, and I said, well, let me get, you know, I'll let you carry on with your open mic. I gotta go, I gotta go, but I'll, I'll be in touch. And so we got it set up for my birthday. It was a Sunday afternoon. And it went really well. I promoted the crap out of it best I knew how. And uh, I, think of, I think I drew about 30, 35 people, which is not bad for a room that you're the only thing anybody's there to, to be there for. There's no residual. Right. Absolutely. And, 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 and that, that pretty well fills that venue pretty pretty well. Too. Yeah, that's I mean, that, that doesn't look I mean, I think it can fit more like 75 or 80 mm-hmm. max, but that's it, it makes it it doesn't look. Un, unattended yeah. it, it isn't like half attended i mean that's enough to fill up most of the central chairs um and give you a, a mass of people to be performing to that's a that was a great venue too it's it, it's one of the saddest things to me that it's gone now but it, it, it really was a great yeah venue. Well, i mean to me it is sad it's it's in the maybe the sadder thing than it being gone is kind of why it's gone and what that means about where birmingham is as a as a music community um but you know to me that the fact that the negative part is just an opportunity for it to get better if it will. And maybe it won't, which that's a, another point of my, the way I'm approaching my music development, the development of acts projects that I do and the reality that I know that I'm going to, there will be a point. The overwhelming likelihood is that I will get to a point where I have to take what I'm doing somewhere else, whether I end up coming back to live or not or whatever, like that's a reality that I've accepted because Birmingham, for some reasons explainable and some inexplicable, just can't seem to manage to to put to support someone up through the middle of it into a successful music career. People can move laterally and then ascend, and that happens all the time. And musicians and culture comes out of Alabama constantly, but it doesn't really seem to come right out of the middle of Birmingham. Uh, and so I, I realize I'm probably not going to be the exception. And if I am, fantastic. I don't have to move, but probably going to happen. Yeah, bring it Got back. done with the show mm-hmm. and didn't have it. And Keith was the guy that ran the place. Was like, man, you did great. You drew well. You performed. You killed it. And man, people want to buy CDs, but you don't have any. Like, what's up with that? 
So when my initial prayer, when that next year change came, I need more money to invest in recordings to make this music thing happening. I've, I've done the say yes to everything, don't worry about practice and just be positive and hit it. And that's done really well. It's gotten me this far, but I need more funds or something's got to give something out. I got to do something different now. And uh, I ended up finishing a show at an outdoor venue uh, after playing five gigs that weekend, two, three paid, two unpaid, uh, to the unpaid were festival gigs. And a guy asked, like, man, you played five gigs this weekend. Are you making a living? I said, no, I'm making $10 an hour working at a bakery. And he said, well, you know, you're too smart to make money like that. And I said, I, I guess, but I, I agree. <laughs> of course I agree, but I, you know, nothing else that would make me more money would also allow me the freedom that I have to, to play music. You know, most people, if they're going to give you 80 grand a year, they're going to demand all of your professional time. And he said, well, has anyone ever explained to you how real estate commission works? And I said, no. And I thought immediately, like, this is ridiculous. I can't be a salesperson. I'm an educator. I'm a, you know, an empath. That's I'm not a sales. That's not my thing. But before I'm a llama haired hippie freak, man. That's right. What are you talking I about? I can't. No one would trust me with sensitive financial information. But I couldn't have been more wrong. And I tell you know me either. And I work at a bank. Right. <laughs> I went through you know a discernment process, and it became clear. So before I knew it, I was in a real estate education classroom. And had my license, quit my job, was sleeping on my mom's floor and was trying to, I was trying to make more money, be able to do music. That was, I continued doing uh, my voice lessons and I, but I stopped gigging again, was dedicated to figuring out this whole business thing and got for a little while slightly caught up in the fact that, well, this is in fact an industry where you have unlimited income potential and the better you do at it and the more people you can satisfy you know, you might be able to get lots and lots of business. And if you can close it, you get paid. And if, and there you go, there's this huge income. So I got, I got caught up in that for a little while. Uh, never let go of music at all. Um, and really, you know, in a lot of ways, what it gave me is it gave me a real peace and a balance because I was no longer funny. I mean, I essentially took the advice, accidentally took the advice that Bobby Horton gave me, which is I found something that was more efficient at making money than what I was doing that still allowed me to, to do as, as much as I could um, in music and it's gotten to where there were now where I don't have to do as much drumming up a business or just keeping myself busy. Cause I don't have the work and I gotta, you know, go to the office and check emails there or something just to make me feel like I'm not, not doing anything to, I'm to a point where some weeks I work 20 or 25 hours. Some weeks I work less than five hours on real estate stuff and have been able to make a good enough living to buy a house and begin saving money and, and be in a situation where, um, where I can afford, I mean, I take, God knows, I, I don't add it up, but I take three or four lessons every week, one voice, two guitar, one piano, and sometimes more. Sometimes I go up to Nashville and take lessons all week, spend $500 on lessons, which it's not the point of spending the money, but the idea is like in this and that it's a little bit non-traditional. It doesn't matter that that only matters if it matters to me, but I'm going to have to be dynamic. I can't just say, well, I'm going to sit here and play this one record. But that's the thing, even that would work. If, if what you were inspired to do is sit there and play along with one B.B. King record forever, then you would end up being, I, well, I don't know. I mean, Eric Clapton or Jeff Beck or something. Like, like it's, any of it will work. But if you're in a situation where you are, where your narrative is different than others, you're going to have to be willing to do things differently than others. And so for me, that means kind of doing it like I'm doing it, be able to do it. So let's say 2015 is when I started real in real estate and it took until the fall of 2018 where I have not had a period where I was super scared 
early on, I was super scared all the time. I was not, I did not know where my next money was coming from, but it always ended up working out. Whether a gig would come through when I needed money or like, and that's one of the things that, you know, when I try to talk to people about making, you know, affecting change in their own lives, other than persisting, and maybe that's what allows you to persist, is to, is the faith that it will be there because it just has to be. This will put me at odds with some folks, but I do really have a belief that there is something, there is a higher power. There is some, because there is absolutely something that helps me out. And it, it isn't a personal God. I don't think it's, for me at least, it's not, I don't experience it as like a, a, a person or an entity or something with a name. I try to, as much as I can, let it be what it is and not ex- have a concept of it, but just be grateful for it and try to listen to it. Because it's quiet, but it's very clear. That's one of the things I tell people is it's, if you let it, you, it'll drown, you can drown it out with other stuff in your mind or not focusing on it. But when you, when it happens and it locks in, it is the clearest. It's like, I don't know. It's like a, it's like a bell in a cave. It's like, it's so quiet, but it's so clear. And if you tune into it, it feel it's all you can hear. It's all you can experience. It just fills you up. Um, that's a little bit of a digression, but. Well, no, but it, it's a good digression really. I mean, because spirituality and that whole genre is a challenge for me personally. Uh, it, it's one that I've, I've struggled with for a, a really, really long time. Uh, but you see kind of the, what you're talking about. You can see that same pattern in many different religions. In Christianity, uh, you know, it's the still small voice. Uh, that you know that you hear um you know in 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 other religions it's, it's different pieces uh different things like that where it's you know uh, uh, just a piece that you have about something or an understanding that you have about something and and so forth so i mean i, I can i can totally see where you you know finding that could be really helpful along your journey and there's nothing wrong with that for sure well and it happens and sometimes it is the voice sometimes it's just a knowledge I would say it's a, it's a realization like, I think this is what's going to happen, but it's a knowing it's, I, this is what's going to happen. And, or this is how to, this is do this. And a lot of times, I mean, that's the, 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 the idea of do something different. I mean, sometimes that's the, the great intuition is this, what, it, what you've been trying has played, it's, has run its course and you need to do something else. Seen is when I started planning my next project which was uh, me backing up a female singer. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's Natalie Valentine, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she, she does have an amazing voice. She's a great singer. I love coming to you guys' shows. And, uh, and, so, and I knew that for me it would be a great opportunity to, it just dawned on me, you know, the, also it would give me an opportunity to be a guitar player and not have to be a singer, a primary singer, which seemed like it would be a great opportunity for me to develop, let, let my guitar playing develop in a performance setting without the pressure of also being the front person and lead singer. How has that been? Has that worked out well? It really has. You know, we've gotten to, uh, we got to a point in this particular moment where we're kind of, we're a little bit less booked than we were. We had a number of places, uh, a couple of places closed, a couple of places stopped doing music or stopped doing the music. Like there was one venue in town, Iron City, that does, has big shows in their main room. And they were all, they have a stage and a really nice sound system in their restaurant. And they were having some, music in there but now I think they've scaled back to just doing it for private parties if the party wants it they can hire some music and they'll they'll provide the sound for a fee uh, the the live sound and the person to run it but we're we're continuing to do it I mean we're playing we got a couple of weddings coming up the next couple of weekends and we're and we're definitely still doing it uh, so 2018 was when we when we started that project started taking lessons and so after I got done charting material for that 
you know, preparing material, the music and understanding what I needed to do from the guitar standpoint. Um, I started taking, going back to, you know, teach me how to improvise with that particular guitar player or guitar teacher, a uh, different one from the, in 2012, but, but I was coming at it from a much, I had a lot more music in my head and under my fingers and stuff. Um, oh, and I should, it's notable to point out in 2016 is when I started singing in the choir that I sing in. In 2017 is when I started taking piano lessons because I had gotten gifted, you know, again, invisible hands. I, it occurs to me in the fall of 2016 after I bought my house that, you know, I've got a music room. I should probably get a piano, a keyboard so I can understand music. A lot of people say it's the easiest way to understand music theory and to get in touch with the ratios and relationships and things. And I told my voice teacher, also the choir director, hey, I think I might like to get a, a keyboard. You know, can we talk about what would be a good keyboard? He's like, I think I can get you a real piano. And there was a lady in the church who was looking to get rid of a piano. And so now my 1957 Arcasonic spinet style piano that's sitting in my music room, which is given to me and I offered to pay for the move, uh, which was then given, I was given credit with my voice teacher, which I then gave to other singers. Because that's, I, I'm, I'll buy anybody one lesson with my voice teacher because it will change your singing experience. Your, uh, your voice teacher, that's uh, Dwayne Tibbs? That's correct. Yeah. And I've, I've heard you talk about him numerous times about how great he is for sure. I mean, he's a great mentor. He's a great, uh, you know, he knows what he's doing as far as vocal health and vocal technique, but he's also just an amazingly kind and teacher spirited person. Does he, does he sing in the, the chorus with you, the choir? Well, he's the director. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. He's, he's, uh, and he always say he does sing some with us to support sections that need it. Um, you know, we're trying to fill out the sections and get confident readers so that he doesn't have to, because typically the director is not also singing, but, uh, you know, he's the kind of person that it isn't about the way it's supposed to be. It's the way it's about the way it can get done the best. And so he does sing with us. Um, so the, the choir interaction has been really good for you. Yeah, it's been, you know, again, it's a context where I didn't have any bad habits. I brought a lot of my, in it, my not being able to read and my vocal issues, but I didn't, it wasn't a context like holding a guitar and singing in a bar where I had a lot of, of, uh, essentially mild trauma from doing it so poorly experiencing the negatives of that. And in general, I mean, learning any musician that reads will tell you learning to read is an, is a huge help all around with music. It helps with composition. It helps with performance. It helps with communication and, and, and playing with others. It's just, it helps you again in that, like when, when you, when you say re, uh, learning to read, you, you're speaking specifically to learning how to read music, read, yeah. yeah read okay. standard notation right. of music. Cause simple, about 2013. Another thing I should mention is that I got a, was given a book uh, called the, the music lesson by Victor Wooten. And that book, coupled with a lot of the study of sort of Eastern or, or unorthodox, I don't know, philosophies or healing and different things like that, and then combine all of that again then with uh, my work with Dwin, at this point just individually, I started realizing that there were, not only could I get better, but also there were things that made music good that were objective. For something that is so subjective in the experience of it, there were some things like we discussed. We talked about groove earlier. Tunings is another thing. If you poorly observe or poorly incorrectly sing, um, it's typically the half steps that are the that are the things that, which is in do re mi fa sol la ti do. That's between the three and the four, and then the seven and the eight, and they're used a lot in melodies 
precisely one or the other, and that's what makes the melody effective. And if you don't sing in, if your intonation or your tuning isn't good, or as it's as it begins to diminish or suffer, the spell that you're casting over your audience begins to lose its effect. The idea being that, like, if you're there at a recital, and this is this is very much in, in a classical music context, which it can it can affect, it can be it. These things can be at play, and they are effectively at play in any kind of musical setting, but there are songwriters. I'm trying to think of somebody and I don't want to be mean to anybody, but if it's about the song, if it's about the wordplay, it's less and less about the music, which means it's less and less about the musicianship. Musicianship helps and you need at least a certain level or it's going to be a problem. But like somebody like, uh, like Todd Snyder, who I think is a fantastic, uh, fantastic entertainer and he's a solid musician. He's not a bad musician, but musicianship isn't, really strong musicianship as opposed to say like Medeski Martin and Wood, like they got no storytelling thing like what Todd Snyder's got going on. They got tons of musicianship because they need it. Cause that's the style. It's this jazz funk fusion stuff. That's all about being part of what makes it what it is, is being a, of a really accomplished player. Todd Snyder is telling these stories a lot of times, not even like more than just a song. He's also like, just telling a vote of uh, he's orating, he's telling a t- telling a story that then turns into a song that turns back into narrative, and so does he need to have perfect you know half step intonation? No, P- they don't really notice. They're not going to notice at all. But if you're sitting in a concert hall and you're singing a classical piece, or you're uh, a country singer, a blues, anything where the musician, the quality of the singing is a is a primary factor in the effectiveness of the music. If you sing bad half steps, if your half steps aren't really nicely in tune, then the spell is broken. And what it's 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 a lot like uh, when groove when you slip out of the groove, nobody when people are walking out, you couldn't say, well, you know, sudden this bad half step. Professionals would know that, right? Or trained musicians, but regular people, when that happens, they look at their watch and they start thinking about what they're going to eat for supper. That essentially music is a is a thing that that can be understood and can be used not in a negative way but utilized. Like if we want them to, if it can make people feel, it can express things, and that's sort of what I mean. That's kind of a duh. Like music is expressive, duh. But it can be the better you know it, the more expressive you can be, and the and the the more diverse and. I don't know, complex, the, the better your palate is, the more you've got, the more you can work with. And, and like, you know, given the examples we've given, some people have, I mean, Albert King, I have people talk about him, he's a blues guitar player. And I mean, Albert King had like five licks. I've heard people say five or six licks. He played over everything and they were so awesome. And his tone was so good and his phrasing and articulation were so amazing and they were so original. They were so, that's Albert King. That didn't come from anybody else. I mean, it came from something, but it didn't sound like that. That's a marked difference. Like, that's Albert King. And you hear it in all kinds of rock and roll. I've heard it on uh, the uh, Bonnie Raitt's guitar player. There's one song that they have. And it's, it's. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's now it's commonplace. Everybody uses it. But when I hear it, I'm like, yep, Albert King. There it is. Sure. Um, and he used five licks. That's it. Always minor pentatonic. I don't think the guy ever played a major third. Uh, which is, you know, usually blues playing, a lot of what makes it great is, 
is overlaying minor and major and and uh, dominance you know the different pentatonic the minor pentatonic and major pentatonic across each other using flight of these blues notes these kind of in between notes and using a lot of different notes in these effective ways whereas Albert King he did some of that but mostly it was it was very simple yeah you know, people talk about the you know like the Beatles you know, uh, swung their hair around and, and were really active on stage. Roy Robertson stood there in one spot, saying everything and walked off. You know, so it doesn't really, again, it's it's more about authenticity than it is any particular thing. But Sure, and going back to Todd Snyder, you know, one of the things, uh, and I love Todd. I mean, he I love listening to his music, his take on things and so forth. You know, one of the, the neat things about if you if you really listen to his stuff, you can tell that he knows the roots from where they come from. So, uh, like, one time in particular, I remember uh, I saw a YouTube video. He was actually in Fayetteville, Arkansas, doing a show. Somebody taped it, put it on YouTube, right? Taped it. I don't, nobody uses tape anymore. <laughs> I'm old, right? Uh, so he was uh, he was doing the show, and he was playing um, Seattle Grunge Blues. And he plays the whole song, and he gets to the end of the song, and he says something to the effect of, hey, for all you folks that uh, that don't think I know where this comes from, well, here's where it comes from. And then he plays a, a Bob Dylan tune, which is, which was kind of the, the pattern for that particular. Yeah, it was a talking blues. Right. It was talking blues. Uh, I, I think it was the uh, talk in New York. Uh, but anyway, he, he did that. And then after he got done with that and he said, and for all you folks that you really old folks that think that I don't know where that came from, here's this. And he plays a Woody Guthrie tune, you know, in the same thing, you know, the same pattern. And so that's one of those things where it goes back to what you were talking about with authenticity is that he's able to, you know, he knows his history. He knows where it comes from he studied how that works you know and granted he may not need to have the perfect half step because he's a storyteller and an entertainer in that way but he also has his own unique perks that kind of give him that authentic vibe well and that's you know this is what's beautiful about what you just said and this where we're at is i think i think we're going to be able to wrap this up in a pretty beautiful way there's a history to everything i used to tell kids about this like why do we have why do we struggle with when am I going to need this? We ought to find something that you already think you need or want to know about and then channel every subject right through it. So you love basketball? Okay, that's we got everything. We got history. We got math. We got physics. We've got science. We've got uh, you know all literature. You can figure out a way to make it all be about basketball. Uh, so similarly, whether it's classical singing and, and you know intonations and whatnot and the math of that or the you know storytelling traditions of wherever it might be like whatever it is you are interested in there's a history of it there's a history of of i mean i'm looking at my house there's like you know the history of molding like there wasn't always molding was there molding in tents and i don't know but like whatever there is there's a history of it if it exists now and if you want to know about it if you want to be a part of it then knowing that history is going to be a part of making you a part of it and that's going to be a good thing so Flash forward to where I'm at right now is doing this project with Natalie. Uh, and then the next thing uh, that seems to have happened is I've, I, you know, I love roots music. And I know we talk about this a lot and it's a little, a little hard to pin down exactly what that means, Americana or roots music. But to me, it's, it's stuff that, that connects back to the melting pot of musical styles that was the United States starting, I guess, at the very beginning, but most specifically, you know, my, in my thoughts, you know, the, the technologies and tra of travel and recording and all these things really started coming together in the early uh, 20th century. And so you started getting, you know, there's a, a book of, of, I can't remember what it's called. I've got it. Um, but where, you know, everything from Native American 
traditional musics to Cajun music, which is already an amalgam of French music and Native American music and German music and Spanish music and, uh, you know, the jazz traditions that come out of New Orleans and other places in the South and, uh, you know, old time music that then turned into uh, bluegrass music with Bill Monroe and a lot of the musicianship that, you know, the Stanley Brothers and Scruggs and Flat a lot of that stuff and blues music that started with, you know, acoustic rural blues and changed. There was more sophisticated rural blues. There was, you know, then electric instruments came along and, and then, you know, where, what's country, what's bluegrass. So all the like gospels also involved in that. Um, the North, uh, the Mexican musics, Tejano, Norteño, there's other ones. I'm not as, I don't know as much about those musics as I do some other stuff and I'm not any sort of expert in any of it, but, that's the stuff that I that those musical styles and traditions and things that harken back to that when it comes to like for example like the boots and pants and boots and pants like dance music it just doesn't like you said it doesn't resonate to me I mean there's clearly people love it and and like sometimes I wish I could dig it because it's like that's probably a lot of fun you know you get together and oh, you yeah. just dance you just move and it's very it's both primal and and you know kind of cerebral at the same time that's, that's cool you know, but it just doesn't do it for me really uh but studying these uh so developing this project with Natalie since then you know continuing with that but what I'm doing with with my own thing is more is really getting deep into these styles. I'm studying bluegrass uh, guitar playing with a couple of different teachers online and in person, uh, studying blues and country, which to me kind of overlap and you can, you can kind of get to both of them at the same time. There's some things that are definitely blues and there's some things that are definitely more of country style. And there's a lot of gray area. Uh, so studying them together is really helpful and working with somebody that's, that's fluent in both uh, is great. And so I've got that continuing to do classical voice and just everything's just developing. I'm playing gigs as they come, not doing a whole lot of proactive stuff except with, with the project with Natalie. What I've been able to do in the last, the, during this year is realizing that I, in addition to continuing the study that I'm doing, I had to work on some confidence stuff that I had. And that's really been in the last two months, realizing that a lot of what was giving me problems throughout my time practicing is some sort of self-worth issues that I hadn't ever really gone into that cave you know because if you've got an issue with not being confident in what you know practice you know guitar practice isn't going to help that you got to go into that because what, what will actually happen is you'll develop all this skill in the practice room and you'll get out in a performance setting and it'll melt right absolutely if you haven't dealt with that confidence stuff and if you can deal with the kind so a lot of what i've been doing in the last two months has been a really month one month has been less rudiment less fundamental practice and more specific like visualization practice and preparing specific this is what I'm going to do at the gig this is what I'm working on and I've been really fortunate that you know kind of going back to the study of histories of things is both Steve Earle and Bob Dylan said in in either direct or implied ways if you want to write songs in the American tradition you would be well served by learning many if not all the songs that Hank Williams wrote and so I've set out to do that and as I was doing it, I thought well if I'm going to learn all these songs I might as well play them someday and I really dig the musical style that his songs are recorded in by him in this very sophisticated, but at the same time, very approachable. It's essentially country music played by jazz players. I mean, those were very accomplished. His backup musicians were super solid, super solid players that probably could play all kinds of styles. And they played in that particular style. It's a lot like Motown. You take jazz players and you say, okay, 
we're going to play this really emotional, but, but somewhat simpler music, but y'all, you know, do as much, you know, don't, we don't want it to sound fancy, but make it awesome. And that's what they do. You can't go wrong with jazz musicians. I mean, it's going to be tasty. It's yeah. going to be appropriate. It's going to serve the song if they're good, you know, if they're, if they're not, you know, caught up on an ego, but that's anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to get music that is, that the song is honored. And when you honor the song, you honor the inspiration, which is honoring, again, this empathy, this thing that binds us all together that we can't really figure out, but we all spend most of our time working with it, studying it, understanding it, expressing it, connecting with it, whatever you want to call it. And so this year, um, actually this coming Sunday, I've got a show, um, here in Birmingham at a place called Rojo where I'm going to be doing 30 Hank Williams tunes backed by really awesome, some jazz, other, you know, accomplished musicians, uh, doing that style. And I don't really know, I don't know what's going to come next, but I know that like, especially with this most recent realizing that so much of it is that I need to continue practicing to develop but that a lot of it is this confidence and kind of believing in the practice that I'm doing and allowing the, the growth to happen. It's that whole balance of being aware. Like if you didn't do well, don't deny it, but also don't let that be a determiner. Like, Oh, well, you know, you messed that up. So something else. And that's like some other implication or other comment. It's just, you didn't do it. And then you can even go, well, well, why didn't you do it? Oh, well, and then it gets into stuff that's where I essentially am doing with my guitar playing and my other practices, the same thing that that DeWin does with voices. Well, why are you not able to change these two vowels on this same note? Oh, well, it's something you're, something you're doing and you could do it. Now there'll be a point where I find I've found my, either the limits of what my brain or body can do or the limits of what I'm willing to spend time doing getting better at you know what i'm saying oh like, i know what you're saying i i there the, the guitar players that i study from i don't really need i don't think to be at the level that really any of them are as far as instrumental accomplishment because that's not really what i'm not trying to be a session guitar player i'm trying to be what i think my highest purpose is is, is a person that writes songs and sings them if i can get good enough at that to do it by myself i could also maybe contribute to others projects or do whatever it might be that comes from it or even or even teaching and mentoring I don't I don't really know but I know that I've gotten to a point where real estate is supporting me enough to where I don't have to worry about where money is going to come from you know as long as patterns hold true which there's no reason to think that they won't and I'm getting better and having more and more fun doing what I do with music and having more and more success both with just you know, having people that'll play gigs with me and having people that'll show up and places that'll hire me to do it, that there's no reason to believe that I won't continue to develop and continue to, you know, eventually, really the next thing from where I am now, aside from you know following through with the the plans that I have, with you know like doing this Hank show, doing things with Natalie, and uh, and at, at some point having you know, acoustic band that might be called a bluegrass band an electric band that might be called a blues band. I don't know, but I know I like playing acoustic music and I like playing electric music. And so I want to be able to have projects that do both of those. But then at some point I'll, I'll feel like, well, you know, I'm at a sustainable rate of accomplishment in these styles and it's time for me to start spur stirring my pot of gumbo and writing songs again. And I always keep, you know, I have a file and stuff on my phone of, you know, who knows when I decide that I might realize I already have an album that just needs to be ironed out. I don't know, but I know that that's, that's where I, I feel like I'm heading. And if something 
something if I end up being a Hank Williams impersonator for the rest of my life after this Sunday, then maybe that's what so maybe that's what it was all about. I don't know, but uh, which I suppose you know I've thought about because I've I've talking I've talked shit about people that do uh, tribute shows in the past. Like, oh, your job is to drive, you know, drive around the country and do Stone Temple Pilots every night. Oh, all right, great. Like, but what about something? Don't you want to write songs? You know, you've learned how to play that guitar. Don't you want to write your own Alice in Chains sounding song? Uh, but, you know, for me, I guess, if, if it were Hank Williams, it'd be, it could be worse. So I've, 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 I've matured a lot. Again, like, you know, you learn, like, well, you know, maybe don't talk so much shit about somebody. It might be great. Who knows? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and in the end, you're making money playing music. So I suppose if that's what you can do, that's what you can do. But... You know, that's where I feel like I'm heading. And like I said, I'm, I've mentioned this before, and I'm, I'm kind of in the headspace of why not? There's no reason not. I've, look how far I've come. I've put goals in front of me, and I've been able to do them. So why not Why not keep being able to do it? And and I'm to a point where if, if it doesn't, if nothing gets any better from today, it's pretty awesome. So that yeah. would be, it would be all right if it didn't. Well, it sounds like you found purpose. You know, purpose in what you want to do and where you want to go. And you sound uh, as happy as I've ever heard you. I mean, you seem like you're in a really great headspace right now. And, and, and uh, you know, it's been a pleasure for me watching you over, you know, the years that we've known each other, hone your craft and get better and really work towards those things. And you can really see the fruits of your labor when you get to listen to you and uh, see, you know, where where you were when we met and how far you've you know progressed down that journey uh, has been a lot of fun for me to watch how uh is there somewhere that people can find you would you would you, you know is there well you i know, know we don't have an album yet right true and i'm still a little under uh, whatever that would be under engaged i'm under out there i do have a, a facebook music page so bob marston music uh, on the facebook i think if you type it into the search bar you should find me i don't think there's anybody any other bob marston's musics out there there's some youtube videos floating around i've got one or two on a channel that's bob marston music but you're better off i think just searching in youtube for me or there's some videos on the on the facebook page um but other than that you know uh, i think my email's on the facebook page as well so at this point you know because i'm doing more local stuff i'm keeping it kind of low-key although i do you know i'm pretty sure as these things pick up i am going to be more i hear instagram's kind of the way to go as someone who dabbles in all of that stuff, uh, I think what you have to do is you have to find whichever social media platform fits you best and use that one. They all work. They all reach people. They all have, you know, these different things. Um, you know, if Facebook fits you best, use Facebook. If Instagram fits you yeah, best, I mean, use it's what I started with. Whatever. And I don't really have a lot of time to get it, make anything any better at this point, because I don't, it's like, it'd be like, uh, inviting a bunch, you know, figuring out what kind of tablecloth you needed when like you still hadn't prepped the, the, you know, you hadn't gotten things in the kitchen straightened out. So I'm kind of, kind of trying to put one thing in, in front of the other, but it does seem like, and the, it's all about just connecting with people. And ultimately I want to do as far as the getting it out there in the music business, I tend to be real grateful dead minded. Like I'm going to try to find people, you know, just head straight to them, you know, don't, you know, drive to their front yard, play right. music in the front, you know, like, <laughs> there doesn't need to be any more frou frou or logistics than, than there needs to be. So, sure. But yeah, well, we'll, so we'll, there's we'll, a Facebook page and a little bit on YouTube, uh, but just be on the, be on the lookout, you know? Yeah. Okay, cool, man. Well, I appreciate the time. Thank you so much for, for spending time with us. We'll add some links to your YouTube stuff and to, uh, to Facebook uh, out there so that uh, people can get a taste of the Bob Marston experience. And uh, so profound. <laughs> thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, Elliot.
Some really great stuff from Bob, huh? I, you know, there were so many things that Bob said that I really, really liked. There were a lot of, uh, I guess, what we would call quotables in there. But, you know, quotables really are kind of a modern-day term for... Uh, wisdom in a bite, you know, like a, like a, a bite size of wisdom, because, you know, there are different things that we say th- and think about that are really impactful. And Bob had a lot of those. I really liked uh, some of the some of the things that he had to say in regards to how he was rethinking rethinking these different pieces of his of his past in a different way. And that's one of the things that we really wanted to emphasize here at Plain Ordinary Dragon through all of the different podcast uh, guests that we had or have is how they reexamine their lives by taking a look back. It's kind of a key in finding your way is to analyze not only the good and the bad, but the context of your life to this point. And understand that, you know, I don't know who said it, but you have survived 100% of your bad days to this point. And that, that's important to, to realize is that no matter how bad anything's gotten, you're still here. You're still, you're still kicking. You're still scrapping. You're still surviving. And, and maybe you're still thriving. You know, and it's important to realize that we can overcome these challenges. You know, one of the things that Bob said in the interview was something that's always worked for him is if something isn't working, do something different. There's a lot of wisdom in that. And and there's, you know, the the wisdom a lot of times is just trying to figure out when to cut and and do something different and when to stay the course. And that's that's the hard part. Right. But. If something isn't working, if you get to that point and you're like, huh, this isn't working, I can see this isn't working, then you need to do something different. That's, you know, one of the things that, you know, it's a pivot, it's a turn, it's a, you know, maybe, maybe the way that I envisioned this is not the way that it's actually going to work out, but I'm going to keep going down this path or I'm going to keep going this direction or I'm going to change directions a little bit because what's happening right now isn't working at all and I need to do something different. So there are a lot of really good things that Bob had to say. I'm very thankful that Bob took the time to spend with us and tell us about his life. You know, being vulnerable is one of the hardest things in life to do and it's why it's so scary, but it's also the thing that binds us together is our connection because of our vulnerability, because we're able to look at each other and say, I can see you, I can see flaws, I can see issues, I can see challenges, but I love you anyway. And when you look at me, you can see flaws and challenges and issues and problems, but you love me too. You know, one of the things there's, my wife likes to put things uh, up around the house, different, uh, oh, sayings and things like that. One that she has hanging in the, in the bedroom that I really like says, to love a person is to see all of their magic and to remind them of it when they have forgotten. I'm going to go ahead and leave it there for today. I hope you all enjoyed listening to Bob. Please make sure that you go go and check out his stuff on YouTube. Check him out on, on Facebook. He's around town. If you're in Birmingham, Alabama, go check out some of his shows with Natalie. Uh, go check out some of his, his shows. Uh, by the time this airs, his show uh, about doing Hank Williams stuff was is already over, obviously. But, you know, make sure you connect with Bob if you can, because he's a really special individual and one of my best friends uh, here in Birmingham. So I appreciate Bob being on today. 
and I, I hope you all support him. And if you can, go out and leave us a review. Go out and and um, and leave a review on iTunes, or uh, you can also go out to Podchaser and, and leave a, a review there if you want. You know, one of the things that helps this podcast, if you like what you're hearing, if if you get some value out of it, please make sure that you share it because that's the only way that these messages, the good messages are going to, the good voices, that's the only way that they're going to proliferate through the world is if we share them on a grassroots level. It's not about advertising and it's not about search traffic. It's, it's not about inanimate things. It's about living, breathing people sharing. I need you to do that. So if you've enjoyed the podcast in any way, shape, or form, please, please go out there and give us a like, a rating on iTunes, or go out to Podchaser and, and write a review there in case, you know, if you have an Android phone instead of an iPhone, you know, definitely Podchaser is a good place to go, or Stitcher, or any of the other ones. The more that you can support the podcast, the more we can get this message out to other people that you're more than enough. And you just need to find your confidence because you may be plain and you may be ordinary, but you're a dragon and you can do amazing things. And we just can't wait to see them. Just be me.